Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3. I will begin reading in verse 16 and we'll continue on through chapter 4, verse 1 in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3:16 through 4:1 This is the word of the Lord Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord And whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we see the far-reaching implications of your word and your will in our lives. Pray that by your spirit you would enliven our hearts to hear this word, and apply it to our lives and all that we say and do. And most of all, that we would love and serve and honor the Lord Christ, to whom we are subject. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There is a popular saying that every man has a code. You can see famous examples of codes of rules for life in history and and stories. If you're familiar at all with the literature concerning pirates, you might have heard of the Pirate's Code. Even though pirates were generally lawless and violent thieves, they do have limits. They do have certain rules they won't break, certain lines they won't cross. Or growing up in Wyoming, as I did, we'd hear a lot about the Code of the West, the way that good cowboys and cowgirls would go through life. In fact, Wyoming adopted the Code of the West as articulated by author James Owen as its official state symbol in 2010. And it includes these various rules like live each day with courage and take pride in your work. Everyone lives according to some code, some law, whether they want to admit it or not. 
Well, we return this week to our series in the book of Colossians, picking up where we left off last week, getting into Paul's practical exhortations to the church and to its members. Just as a brief review, Paul wrote this book to Colossae to encourage the church, the saints there, as they were facing the Colossian heresy. It was a false teaching. It was a syncretism, a combination of Judaism, uh, the pagan folk religions of the area, and Christianity. Now, in the earlier doctrinal section of the book, Paul, to combat this heresy, he was stressing the divinity and the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is God, and as God, he and he alone is worthy of worship, not angels, not regulations, not empty ceremonies. And so Paul is encouraging the Colossians to cling to and continue in the gospel that they have been given. This God-man, Jesus Christ, had lived a life of perfect righteousness to meet what was required of them under the law, and he suffered and died in their place to pay the penalty for their sins. And so then in this second section of the book, in light of the glorious realities of Christ that Paul presented, he gives practical instructions to the Colossian church on how they should love each other and how they should live in the world. What is their code? What should it be? And this is a question that all of us face. In light of who Christ is and what he has done, how then should we live? What do we adopt? The pirate's code or the code of the West or whatever other man-made codes there are will only get us so far. And so Paul is laying out a code of conduct for the Christians at Colossae. He started to do this in the passage we looked at last time and continues on now. He has reminded us of the glories of Christ's resurrection, and then he described things that we ought to put to death and things we ought to put on. And then this teaching continues here at the end of this chapter. He lays out this code of ethics for the Colossians, and we will look at it today in three points. First, we will look at doxology, or the rule concerning worship and praise to God in verses 16 and 17. Second, we will look at the rule for domestic life in verses 18 through 21, the relations of families, of spouses, of parents to children. And then third and finally, we will look at duty in verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. We will look at vocation. We will look at service to masters and service and employment and in the world. So first, we will look at doxology and how Christ gives us a rule for that in verses 16 and 17, how we are to praise God. Now, we see in these verses three aspects of this doxology. First, we see that we are to live a life characterized by hearing and trusting confidently in Christ's word. We see in verse 16 that the word of Christ, the truth about Christ and his gospel the sort of thing that Paul has gone to lengths in this letter to express ought to dwell in us richly. It ought to be all-encompassing in our lives. It is more than mere information. It brings with it transformation. It affects every fiber of our being, every part of us, every thought, every word, every action. 
We are new creatures. We are new creation. We are fundamentally transformed in Christ by the power of his gospel worked in us by his spirit. So what does it mean for the word to dwell richly? To use an example from food, this would be like if you marinated or smoked meat. The meat is so immersed in something, sauce or smoke or whatever, it undergoes a change. The taste, texture, and characteristics of the meat are made into something different from where they began. Growing up in Wyoming, as I did, we would sometimes hunt antelope. But the antelope there, they eat nothing but sage, and as a result, they don't taste very good, at least I don't think. So when we would have antelope, my dad would take the meat and he would smoke it into jerky, and that would change the meat into something good, something we would like to eat. So we are to be so deeply immersed in the word of Christ that it changes us, that it affects us, that it makes us into something different. We see this here expressed in Paul's teaching. We are to speak the truth of the word to one another. Now this happens formally through the church, through what we're doing here right now, but also informally in other places of life. In our lives outside of the church, we are to study the word. We are to teach the word to one another, to our families. We are to study it together, and we are to let it impact our whole lives. But second here, we also see the word of Christ expressed to us through our music. Why do we sing in church? Particularly in our Reformed churches, why do we sing psalms? Well, in this verse, we get an answer. We are commanded here to sing psalms. While psalm can be a general term for a type of song, as God's people, the term takes on a specific meaning, a specific collection of psalms, the 150 of them that we have in the Old Testament. They are songs given to us from God to show us how we ought to praise him, and we use those in our worship. Now we are also to sing hymns. William Hendrickson here comments that hymns are songs of praise to Christ. That would be the meaning of that word. We are also to sing spiritual songs. Hendrickson writes here that these are other sacred music that may not be direct songs of praise, but are still relevant. So these three categories can mix and overlap. There are psalms that are hymns, and so on and so forth. But what this also tells us, because this has been a controversy in Reformed teaching and doctrine, it is permissible and possible to sing songs. Besides psalms, there are some in Reformed churches that say we should only sing the psalms. And there's nothing wrong with singing psalms. I like singing psalms. I try to, in every service, incorporate at least one psalm that we sing. But the most important part of any song that we sing, it needs to be faithful to the word. So whatever we're singing, it needs to be in accord with biblical truth. Now I say this as we face in our day something of a crisis of worship, particularly as it pertains to music. It's nothing new. I grew up in the worship wars of the 1990s where churches were being deeply divided along the lines of, should we sing the old hymns or should we sing contemporary songs? You might be a little surprised to find out that I was once a contemporary music leader in a Baptist church. I would play my guitar and sing, and 
I had hair and stuff back then. It was, it was just a different time. From this, I learned a lot about contemporary worship culture and some of the issues there. First off, a lot of the modern worship music says things that aren't true. It teaches error. It misrepresents God and his word. Um, but second, a lot of worship music today can be very repetitive and shallow. So much so that the by limitation of by this limitation of shallowness in the music, the things they sing, they cannot even begin to grasp the glory of Christ. When you're saying the same few words dozens of times, there's not a lot of the word of Christ that we see about here in Colossians that's being brought forth. Third, contemporary music, as with much of contemporary culture, it tends to focus on ourselves rather than on Christ and on others. How many of the modern songs are about things like how I will break chains and I will do miracles and so forth? The songs we are commanded to sing and use are to focus on the word, not us. Now, fourth, there is something of a celebrity culture among practitioners of contemporary worship. Those who lead, those who play in the band, those who put out the albums and get on the radio, they're special. And they are so visible and they take up so much time in such a prominent place in worship that it almost becomes like a performance. It becomes indecipherable from some other concert you might go to some other time in the week. When I was leading worship, I was often on the pendulum swing between pride when things were going well and people seemed to like the songs and be getting into them and despair when it seemed like they weren't. So in this contemporary worship culture, Reformed churches and Reformed worship can seem very strange, can be viewed as outdated or boring. But we have reasons for what we do. We want to do what God has commanded, exactly what he has commanded and nothing more, because we do not want to worship God falsely. We want our worship to be glorifying to God and not glorifying to musicians or to ministers or to ourselves. God and his word remain central. This is why the songs we sing and all the things we do in worship should be giving glory to God. The songs we sing, old, new, otherwise, they should be bringing forth the word of Christ and making Christ the center just speaking, again, from my personal experience, when I left contemporary worship behind, I found Reformed worship to be refreshing. It didn't have to be about me anymore or my performance or what I was doing, but about what God has done. So all this to say, from these verses, we are to sing the way God has instructed us. He's given us the Psalms. We sing the Psalms. We sing hymns and we sing spiritual songs that are according to the word of Christ. They tell the truth about who God is and what he has done and what we ought to do in light of this. We worship God as he has commanded because he is worthy and our worship is the highest and most important expression of our Christian life. All the other things that we can do that may be good in Christian things, those are fine, but worship is the most central part of the Christian life. We will worship God forever in eternity. 
Other things we may do will cease, but worship of God is forever. By our worship, we come here on Sunday morning and do these things that we do according to the word of Christ, we taste eternity. This is just a little glimpse of what we will do forever in glory. But in third, we see in verse 17, this comprehensive breach of the word of Christ. It is done in a spirit of thankfulness. Whatever we do is to be in the name of Christ. We are representatives of him in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. But we don't do this out of burdensome obligation. We do this in thankfulness for the glorious realities that Christ has brought us and given to us. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were without hope. But God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, became a man, entered this creation, suffered, died, and was raised from the dead to raise us from death. He washed away our sins and granted us eternal life. What good news. If you believe this, how can you not be thankful for it? And a life of thankfulness shows. It is contagious. It affects us and affects how the world around sees us. It is part of how we are salt and light to this dying world. But having looked at our first point, doxology, how we thank and praise God in our worship and in our lives, we turn now to our second point today, which is domestic relations. And this is what is taken up in verses 18 through 21. So here we get four verses, each one dealing with one of the major relationships within the family. Sorry. First, we see that wives are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submission is a general characteristic of the Christian life. While perhaps it is most commonly known, this word submit, and gets the most press in these days for its use here and in Ephesians 5, talking about the submission of wives to husbands, the word for submission here is used to describe all of these other relations too. It's used in other texts to describe the relationships of masters to slaves, of children to parents, and just the general submission that all believers are to show to one another. Submission is a general characteristic of the Christian life and Christian relationships. Now, submission, despite what our culture often teaches, is not a bad thing. It is a very Christian thing. Wives are not really being asked to do anything beyond the normal duty that is becoming to Christians in all of their relationships. And yet, while submission is fitting to Christians, it can be difficult. All people, men and women alike, single and married alike, young and old alike, do not naturally desire to be submissive. We are all, by our fallen nature, selfish. We like to look out for number one. And in the marriage relationship, this selfishness is poison. Nobody wants to or will for long live with an overly contentious or selfish spouse. As it applies here, wives are to submit to their husband's leadership in matters where doing so does not go against God's will as expressed in his word. 
As much as they are able within biblical parameters, wives are to live submissive, humble, and peaceful lives in their homes and families. But this is not a unilateral imposition. Second, we see in verse 19 that husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Husbands ought to love and lead their wives in such a way that submission is as easy as possible. Husbands ought to steward the authority that they're given over their wives and over their children. Husbands are to cherish their wives. Husbands are never to use their wives' submission as a cover for their own sin and abuse and mistreatments. In Paul's more expansive treatment of the marital relation in Ephesians 5, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So the love of a husband towards his wife ought to be self-sacrificial. This follows the same logic we have seen with the relationship between Christ and his church. Because Christ is who he is and has loved us with has loved us with so great of a love, we live a life of joyful gratitude and thanksgiving. Similarly, a husband that loves with a selfless and sincere love ought to produce in his wife a thankful response of submission and cooperation. This is not guaranteed, of course, because we are talking about relationships between fallen and sinful humans. But perhaps it is best to frame the challenge of this text in this way. Husbands, be the kind of man that your wives would want to submit to. Wives, be the kind of women that submit even if the perfect representation of Christ's love isn't there because the perfect representation won't be there. We are fallen sinners. But in all of our human relationships, we should strive to give better than we get. We do what is right because God has required it, and God is worthy, and we do it for him even if the other person is unworthy. This is a difficult proposition. A lot of what the present world teaches and how it acts about marriage, just as with worship and other things, it is self-absorbed. It's all about me. What can I do to make myself happy and get what I want? I don't like my marriage, I can just quit. I can get a divorce, get a new one. My marriage doesn't look like the ridiculous standards of romance on the movies and TV. Then, Well, something's wrong. Guess I'll quit and get a new one. But the Bible confronts this worldly perspective with a marriage relationship defined by mutual self-sacrifice. If you're married, despite all the personal joy and pleasure it may bring, and hopefully it does, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is more about Christ and about your spouse than it is about you. Your marriage is a picture of the self-sacrificial love that Christ shows for his bride. He held nothing back. He bore all hatred and scoffing and shame on the cross so that even the very people who tormented and killed and blasphemed him that dark day might live. Your marriage is a picture of that. And if you are single and will marry someday, your marriage is to be a picture of that. 
Now, third here, we see an exhortation to children regarding their parents. They're to obey their parents, for this is pleasing to the Lord. As with the submission that wives are to show their husbands, children are to obey their parents in all things lawful. So this means if parents are commanding their children to sin, to do what is evil, then there they ought to disobey. But otherwise, children are to submit. As with the biblical teaching on marriage, this can be pretty countercultural in our day. Society presses children too young and too soon to exert their personal autonomy over and against their parents. The state and other institutions seek to erode parent-child relationships. The media portrays parents as authoritarian and out of touch and a relic of bygone days. If you've ever watched a TV sitcom, how often, if it's portraying a family, is the dad portrayed as foolish, overweight, lazy, and useless? And they roll the laugh track over it. How often are mothers portrayed as overbearing and micromanaging? And because parents just don't understand, rebellion in the hearts of children is encouraged takes on darker and more insidious forms now in our day when we see things like the transgender revolution where children are being persuaded behind their parents' backs in schools and libraries and other places to rebel not only against their parents but against nature and God himself. This is not the way for children of Christ to be. And as with the marital relationship, This submission of children to parents is not based on the worthiness of parents, but on the worthiness of God who has commanded it. Submit because God has given you this as your duty. Now, as with the marriage relationship, this command to children is not unilateral. It doesn't only go one way. For fourth and finally, we see the exhortation given to fathers regarding their children. Fathers are not to provoke their children lest they become discouraged. Just as husbands are to be the men that wives should want to submit to, they should be the kind of men that children want to obey. They should properly steward their authority. They should not be overly harsh or authoritarian because this kindles resentment and rebellion. They are to love their children and faithfully and patiently instruct them. And children should honor and reciprocate this love. So in summary, we see in all of these relationships, these domestic relationships, described here how Christian living in light of the gospel affects our families. Now the family is a good God-given institution. In fact, it is the most basic of God-given institutions. This does not mean that our families are perfect, that family life is necessarily easy, but the family is a good, God-honoring thing, and we should love and honor and live in and serve our families as God commands us to do. But having looked at our doxology, our worship, and then our domestic relations, our families, we now turn to our third and final point, our duty. So the duty I am speaking of here is our duty to work. So Paul here addresses bondservants, as the English translations render it. Now the Greek word used here is douloi, 
which is probably better translated, more accurately translated as slaves. Now, in the first century Roman world where Paul was living and writing, much of the population, perhaps as much as half of the population, were slaves. Now, we don't live in a world where slavery remains as a widespread thing. But to understand a little bit about slavery, slaves were something less than people in that day. They were more akin to property, for that is the nature of slavery. It is the ownership of another person. Now, Christianity appearing on the scene was revolutionary in that it actually acknowledged slaves as human beings and equals, fellow image bearers of God. No one else at the time was really doing anything like that. It's worth noting that this letter to the Colossians was probably written at the same time and delivered alongside the letter to Philemon, Paul's shortest letter, which is addressed to a master regarding Onesimus, his runaway slave who has come to Christ. There Paul implores Philemon, the master, to forgive Onesimus and receive him again into his household. Paul doesn't actually call for the abolition of slavery, the freeing of slaves, but his writings and the rest of Scripture lay the groundwork on which the abolition of slavery would come. If slaves are equal image bearers, equal members of the church, which Scripture clearly teaches, then there really is no room for treating them the rest of the week as property. So Paul is treating masters and slaves as equal in that he addresses both on equal terms as Christians able to receive and understand and practice the teaching of God's word. Now, because slavery was such a present reality in Paul's day, because many in the church would have been slaves to these slaves, Paul encourages obedience to masters. But he goes further than just bare obedience to commands. He encourages an attitude and a perspective behind it that goes above and beyond. He says this is not for eye service. Slaves are not to obey just to be seen, to butter up to the boss, to look like they're doing good work when the boss is around while slacking off when he's not. They are to obey at all times with sincerity, to obey like they mean it. Now, why? Why would they do this? Why as slaves, where they're treated as property, where they're treated as something less, where they're in an unjust situation? Well, verse 23 ultimately tells us they are working for the Lord, not for their earthly masters. Now, while not a perfect analogy, the same holds true for any of us who hold any kind of earthly employment. We work not for our bosses. We work not for the paycheck. We work for Christ. And so we are to show our superiors at work, those we work with, those we deal with in our business, proper honor and dignity because of who they are, but also because they are fellow image bearers and because we are doing it out of obedience and submission to Christ. We are to work faithfully. We are to do good work, even if it is not appreciated or recognized or even known about. We are to carry out our vocations with integrity and propriety. It is from texts like this that 
the doctrine of vocation, uh, so common in Reformed theology and thinking comes, where all work, whatever we're doing, it is work for Christ. It is work that is Christian. We should not steal from our employers. We should not be lazy. We should not deal fraudulently. We should not do other things that will reflect poorly on us or dishonor our Christian witness. We serve our masters as we serve God because we are serving God through our service. As we saw earlier with our family relations, ultimately we are not accountable to our bosses or others we do work with or for for our submission to them. We are accountable to God because he has required this of us and he is worthy. Because God has commanded our submission to these authorities, obedience to them is obedience to God. Now, just as with all these other relationships and the teachings we have described in this text, Paul's exhortation here may not be culturally popular. Society pushes us to always be seeking to usurp authority and be the boss ourselves and get more for ourselves rather than practicing humble submission to the ones we have. There's a new trend, a new fad called quiet quitting, where basically employees take it on themselves to do the bare minimum that is required to keep their jobs and nothing more, not really showing any initiative or any respect for the job or the people they work for. Just another example of the backwardness of our culture. We see now that people change jobs now more than ever, and there may be good reasons for that. Some forego working altogether, you know, try to live off the government, try to live off a family, and try to avoid having a responsible vocation and honoring God through it. People waste time when they work. As Christians, we ought to be the best employees because we know that our work, even in secular vocations, brings glory to God. We love God and love neighbor through our worldly employment. But finally, we see that this relationship, too, is reciprocal. And we see this when we get into verse 1 of chapter 4. Those who are masters, those who supervise workers, those who own their own businesses, should be just and fair with those who labor for them. So if you have employees, you should deal fairly with them. If you manage people, you should manage them the way you want to be managed, not taking advantage of them or misusing them. Now, why? Because your management, your leadership in your business is delegated authority from God. God rules over all, and any of us who have any earthly authority are accountable to God for how we use it. It's true of governments. We see this in Romans 13, among other places. It's true of families, and it's true of our work, of our labor, of our vocations. Where there is authority, that authority comes from God, and that authority is subject to God's rule. So bosses should not be brutish or totalitarian. They should love and honor and care for their workers. They should be the kind of managers that they would want to work hard and well for. They should not impose undue or unfair burdens on their workers. They should honor them and respect them and treat them even better than they deserve. So, we have seen today in this text a lot of various teachings 
all a part of the Christian's code, the rule of life that Christ has for us, the way that Christ has commanded us to love one another. We've seen this in our doxology, how we worship and thank and love God, in our domestic relations, how we love and serve our families, and in our duty, how do we love and serve and honor those who we work with and work for and those who work for us. However, I do not want you to merely leave here today with this to-do list of how to live better this life. Let me be very clear. These practical exhortations here in Colossians, they only matter because they are grounded in what came first, the truth and glory of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Apart from him, all of these things that we have spoken of today don't really matter. It is the gospel that undergirds all of this, the person and work of Christ, the salvation in Christ, and Christ's lordship over us, which is ultimately the lordship that we are serving when we do these things. Jesus Christ is our God. He is preeminent over all. But because of his great love for us, he modeled this humility and submission better than anyone ever has or ever could. He took on the form of a servant. He became a man. He lived the perfect life that we could not without sin, and he suffered and died to endure God's wrath on our behalf. He died and was raised from the dead. If by faith we are united to him, we too are raised to new life. And it is only in this new life in Christ, trusting and resting in his salvation, that any of this other stuff matters. Do not some other non-Christian groups have good family values? Do they not make good employees or bosses? But for the Christian, the reasons are different. They are grounded in this thankfulness to Christ for what he has done. It is a thankfulness and a joy far beyond anything this world offers, and it overflows into how we relate to this world while we're here. So, if you are here today and you do not know the joy of this new life in Christ, the gospel is offered to you. Christ lived the perfect life you could not and suffered and died to pay the penalty for sins. And salvation and eternal life are offered to all who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. But without that, nothing else I said here about these relationships and these submission, it doesn't mean anything if there is no faith in Christ. But if you are here in Christ today, the exhortations for Paul are real to you and matter to you. Remember what Christ has done for you. Things you could never do for yourself. Things that guarantee your eternal life and glory. And this glorious reflection will motivate you to a life of thankful service. You will desire to worship God rightly even when it's unpopular. You will love your families even when they make it hard. You will work well in your vocation even when the work seems vain or goes unnoticed. Why? Because you do all these things for Christ. And Christ, by his Holy Spirit, works in us the desire to do them. So let us love Christ, rest in Christ, and serve Christ in all that we do and all that we are.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching of your word, even as it is in many ways difficult, challenging, countercultural. It confronts many of the things that we hear and that we see and that we even do ourselves. I pray that you would forgive us where we have fallen short. I pray that most of all, that through this we would see Christ, that we would love him, that we would trust in him for our salvation, and that because of that salvation we have, that we would in love and honor and thanksgiving to him, honor his lordship in all that we do and in all of the relationships that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.